evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. It is uh, 5.02 here on the East Coast, Saturday, March 23rd, 2013. Thank you all for joining us. Um, of course, with me, as always, is the uh, co-host of the Dose Nation podcast and, of course, the founder of the website, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing all right. It's been an interesting week in the news. Um, I've had yeah. to deal with a lot of fallout from this backlash from TED, the TED Talks on uh, on the internet. They're videotape talks usually by scientists or professionals talking about a specific field. Ideas worth sharing are the TED Talks. Well, TED decided to pull down uh, speeches by Graham Hancock and Rupert Sheldrake who are both very well-known figures in the psychedelic community and discuss what could be called controversial topics or controversial theories. And what happened was uh, the TED organizers and the TED editorial board uh, was putting together some standards, and because of some complaints from people in the scientific community, they decided to pull these two videos because they, uh, they made some inaccurate claims. They lacked a little bit of credibility. And both of them attacked science and the uh, scientific methodology in a way that rubbed, you know, actual scientists the wrong way. Not that not that Rupert Sheldrake isn't an actual scientist; he is. But uh, but anyway, uh, since I'm in the psychedelic field and I tend to fall on the side of science and rationality, I have no problem with what Ted did. Whereas I think a lot of people in the psychedelic community, or some uh, a segment of the psychedelic community believes that this is a kind of censorship and that Ted is trying to cover up the truth about psychedelics or this alternate history that uh, Graham Hancock specializes in. I don't so think that's, that's, that's the case been my all. week. Yeah, that's that's what I've been dealing with this but, week. But let me say, I, I, I don't think that's, a, that's, that's the case. Um, I think that Ted is uh i mean look first of all ted is ted is an organization that gives you know different kinds of people you know especially in the scientific field exposure it gives uh it's a conduit for them to um uh for for the scientists to uh you know get their work out there and uh i mean if t- uh, if ted chooses to pull a video i mean it's 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 their own choice i don't see uh how that censorship? First of all, it's not like Ted is government run, uh, or is it? Or maybe it is. No, it's not. Okay, I, I didn't think so. So look, it's uh, you know they can. Sh- I mean, that would be like somebody coming to you know. Let's say we interviewed someone and then we took the interview down, right? Because we said, well, it's not in line with our website. And then something. Then people. Or start- it wasn't a very good interview. Or right. Guest right. Said something that was crazy that we didn't right. want to have to apologize exactly, for. Exactly. Exactly. And and then you know, uh, and then we got attacked for that. I mean, it's 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 the same kind of thing. And, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, you know, Graham Hancock or, uh, Sheldrake, but, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, maybe it might not belong well, uh, here's, on Ted, you here's know? Here's the problem. It seems to me that, um, a rational person would say that Ted has the right to, uh, take down whatever videos they want for whatever reason, because it's their editorial decision. I mean, they're running the brand. They should be able to protect the brand, and if their brand represents credibility and they want to take down a video for for whatever reason, they should have the right to do that without somebody calling censorship. Because they're an editorial board. They have standards. They're putting together standards. They want to have credibility in the future. To do that, they have to set up some sort of editorial standards, and they have an anonymous scientific board. The second thing is that if you're a scientist and you want to get a new idea out there, you have to go through a very rigorous process of peer review. And it's not just like one person saying, oh, I don't like that idea. It's a board of a board of people, lots of people who look over your ideas and give you revisions and force you to go through revisions and revisions and revisions until your idea can be published in a peer review journal without being shot at from every direction. Right. And I mean, it's, you know, Graham Hancock hasn't had that kind of oversight. Rupert Sheldrake has had that kind of oversight when he's had to publish on morphic resonance. And he's had a very hard time getting theories related to morphic resonance published in uh, scientific journals. Right. And, you know, but see, then, of course, the next argument comes and you have to understand this. This is argument after argument after argument. I mean, the, mm-hmm. and, and the rebuttals keep coming. Well, the scientific community is biased. Right. So. By their bias, they're excluding people like Graham Hancock and Richard Ch- and uh, Sheldrake because they want to censor the truth because they don't want people to know what's really going on. That would be the counter argument. 
Um, and that's one that I've well, heard so, before. So yeah. So when you get so the, so Graham Han- well, Rupert Sheldrake, I have to say, was he he's been re- pretty quiet and he's been very reserved in his response. He hasn't really gotten up in arms. He's had a very measured response. Graham Hancock, on the other thing, the first thing he did was send out a mass email saying Ted was censoring him for his ideas, which is different than saying Ted finds my ideas lacking in credibility and has posted my video in another place. He's saying, no, they censored me. And what they're doing is basically the opposite of censoring him. Because now if you look, if you search for his... uh if you search for his talk on Google, the war on consciousness, you can find it everywhere. It's been reposted everywhere. I mean, it's 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 the opposite of censored. It's become viral almost. So Ted doesn't really have the power to censor anybody. Right. So all they can do is what is say whether or not they want to put their brand on something. Right. And they didn't want to and, put their brand on it. Right. And that and 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 that is their own choice. Whether I mean I mean it's and it's not like the talk isn't available. Um, I haven't listened to it. Um. I'll be honest. I haven't listened to either of them. Um, oh well, I, I've seen both of them. They're I, not. Okay. They're not. They're not necessarily new. They've been around for a few months, and yeah. they're very popular. And uh, and the reason why they're very popular is because because they are a little bit fringe, and they are discussing these new ideas that are a little bit outside of the realm of the scientific norm. I think that's why people are fascinated by them. But the problem with that is that uh, these these talks, both of them. Graham Hancock's talk is, was titled The War on Consciousness. Sheldrake's was titled The Science Delusion. Both of these talks come out of the gate swinging at science and scientific method with this, with this, this look you're talking about, this perspective that says science is ignorant and they're missing a big piece of the picture regarding, relating to consciousness and creation and the mystery of the universe. And science is biased against new ideas. That's why our ideas are being dismissed. But you can't, you can't come out of the gate with, a, with an argument like that saying science is biased and then expect people in the scientific community to take you seriously. Actual scientists who work in the field of biology and archaeologists get offended when somebody like Graham Hancock says all archaeologists and all biologists are closed-minded when it comes to evolution. They're not. Everybody, everybody in the science, well, not everybody, but there are many people in the scientific community with very open minds who would love to find something new, some new crazy divergence in reality that goes against the scientific norm, as long as it was credible, as long as it could be demonstrated and proven and tested and measured. But if it doesn't meet those standards, then the scientific community is skeptical, and it has a good reason to be skeptical. Absolutely, and again, you know, I mean, it's not. It's it is it is, and you know, people, you know, they talk about they want to include, uh, you know, look, science looks at, looks at, obje- at at reality objectively. It believes that there is an objective truth to be found. That is the goal of science. Well, it doesn't necessarily believe that there's an objective truth to be found. Well, it, it, what it, what science says is. We can make measurements and predictions with pretty good probabilities. Right. And these. And we know with pretty good certainty the way that reality is going to react when we bounce a certain particle off of it in a certain way. And objectively, for now, in the conditions on Earth, that statement is true. Right. So. Is it always true forever, objectively, for all time? Science doesn't answer that question. No. But, but, but is it, is it true right now to the extent of our understanding? Yes. Yes, and, um, it, and science really doesn't look for truth with a capital T. That's metaphysics or philosophy. No, 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 no. And what I didn't science mean truth looks in for is accuracy, right? And, and I didn't mean re- truth. reproducibility. I, I, I meant you know th- things that can be proven factual, you know, at least in the moment. You know, things that can be right. demonstrated. Exactly. So, um, it's it's so, you know, that's that is that is the goal of science. And if things can don't don't stand up to to, to the fire. Um, that so the way this whole thing came apart is um, Jerry Coyne, who's an evolutionary biologist, he's become pretty famous recently for writing a book called um, Why Evolution is True, which is basically an attack on creationism. Um, and it seems weird that you would have to create a, a rebuttal to creationism now that we know so much about genetics and archaeology, I mean, archaeology and the, and the history of evolution. If you just look at the fossil record, I mean, if you just look at the fossil record, evolution is a pretty good theory. You could poke some holes in it, but it's a pretty good theory. When you look at the genetic record, 
evolution becomes obvious. It becomes impossible to argue with. You can just look at the evolutionary trend of genetics from the beginning of the first organism all the way up to where we are now. And, you know, see how multicellular organisms are all related to each other on this, on this evolutionary tree. So when you have somebody like uh, Graham Hancock who says that people don't understand evolution, evolutionary biologists like Jerry Coyne say, wait, 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 wait. Yes, we do. You're the one who's, you know, causing a stir here. We're the one who's trying to get the correct details. So Jerry Coyne, who is an atheist, he believes in evolution and he's, he's, he's a counter creationist, says, Hey, I don't like all this mushy pseudoscience that Graham Hancock is pushing. He, he, you know, writes a blog post about how Ted's standards are slipping and he basically set this whole thing in motion. He's not particularly fond of Rupert Sheldrake either because anybody who comes out and attacks science because science doesn't believe in their uh, proposed invisible field, you know, um, maybe doesn't, doesn't understand the way science works. I mean, science needs to have a measurement of that invisible field before it will, you know, recognize it as a thing. You can't just claim it exists and then not be able to measure it. Um, and that's kind of where Rupert Sheldrake is with morphic resonance. He, you know, he claims that there's this field that's, that's, that sort of binds evolution together in this, with, with morphic resonance. But it's not a field you can measure and it's nothing that, nothing that has any sort of scientific credibility at all. So instead of revising his theory or falling in line with current evolutionary theory, Sheldrake instead attacks science, which is, I think, a very, you know, dangerous way to go about it. You can't really attack science and, and expect to be taken seriously. Whereas Jerry Coyne, on the other side, is a very, very, very respected evolutionary biologist. He's published hundreds of papers, and he's well-cited and well-respected, and, you know, is really at the top of his field. So Right, he's like a Richard Dawkins, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, really, really. I mean, and, you know, Richard Dawkins is, is one of those people that I, that, I, that I do like, you know? So while I feel like... There should be a place in the world for people like Graham Hancock and Rupert Sheldrake who want totally to propose agree. new theories. Totally agree. I think that they should also know when to respectfully bow out of an argument when they know that they can't win, which seems to be what Sheldrake did with this TED thing. He seemed to think, you know, he's a scientist. He's gone through peer review before. He's had papers rejected. You know, he's had papers rejected that he's had to revise. And, you know, he's published studies and he's had to have those studies reviewed and he's had to, you know, publish revisions to his reviews based on what the, the editors of the, of, the, of the journals wanted before they could, you know, publish it. So he understands the process. Graham Hancock, on the other, on the other hand, I don't think is used to being treated like that. And if anything, he loves the chance to stir up the controversy to get more publicity for himself. Because I think... More people are talking about Graham Hancock this week than maybe ever in Graham Hancock's career. So, who knows? Maybe maybe he's stirring the controversy on purpose. Maybe he's just trolling for publicity by claiming to be uh, so outraged by the way that he's being treated by Ted. Uh, right. You know the um, the the uh, no publicity is right. bad publicity. Right. Right. Yeah. Or that um, he he's 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 you know. You know, he's using the opportunity to his advantage for promotion. Right. Um, which, but I mean, now, I... So so now in the backlash of this, there's a there's a discussion thread up on TED that, that asks the question, does science suffer from a paradigm bias? Or, um, you know, a blindness created by the axiomatic assumptions that there is an objective reality or there are, uh, you know, physical constants to the universe. And... To me, it seems like the answer to that question is no. You're being silly. I mean, there is a little bit of a paradigmatic bias in the way science is taught at the undergraduate level. But once you get to the graduate level and you can start designing your own research and your own studies, there is no paradigmatic bias. So you can do whatever you want. And if you're a religious scientist who wants to do religious scientific studies, you know, you want to study prayer or you want to study meditation or you want to study you know, uh, trance states or meditative states, those are all respectable fields of scientific study. Absolutely, and you would be accepted, uh, and your papers would be peer-reviewed, and you would be taken seriously. Right, uh, right. If you're producing so good research. science is not biased against religion. It's no, only biased not. against proof. 
Right. It's it's they you know they they require uh you know evidence for claims and that's reasonable. Um, it's very I mean you know to it's very reasonable to ask for evidence for claims you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's uh, you know I mean I look for evidence you know I mean that. It's like it would be like basing a political opinion on on uh, on on just well, why do you believe that? Well, just because I believe it. Well, that's not good enough, you know. <laughs> or because I read it in Ayn Rand. Right, right, right. Or because you know Ayn Rand said it, or because you know of this and that. You have to be able to argue it out. You have to be well, able. Well, religion to and politics are the worst offenders in this area because they make they make assumptions and they make policy based on things that aren't really proven. That's not evidence-based decision-making. It's, it's ideologically based decision-making. Well, the other thing I want to mention is that, you know, I mean, as far as religion goes, I think that there's a, you know, um, that there's an aspect to it where I, I don't think that, that, that people should be trying to prove it. I mean, it's faith. It's a faith thing. If people choose to have faith, then they can choose to have faith. If they have experiences that lead them to faith, then that's fine. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, they can't sit there and say, well, I can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt to you that this is real. You can, you, you know, there, there may be enough personal evidence for the individual to believe, right? But when it comes to, um, trying to convince other people, um, you know, you're, you're not going to convince other people unless you can present them with evidence. It's, 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 a, it's a personal and experiential thing. And I think that many people don't, don't would would completely disagree with me um on that sure and many people yeah, and would you can, and you can point to people who we have a problem in the in this country in the united states the number of people who still don't believe in evolution right i mean or or who believe in a form of creationism um that that may go counter to evolution the only and the, it's like banging your head against a wall the i mean o- what what does science have to do to to drive home the point that organisms evolve over time and then on the other side of this you've got mm-hmm. these these new age singularity type people who who don't understand evolution who think that 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 a human being can evolve in a single generation where, you know, we're going to evolve our consciousness or society is going to evolve or the human race is going to, to reach a new level of evolution. The word is thrown around like it's, like it's, you know, a ladder that you climb when really it's a very slow, gradi- gradiated process that happens over many, many generations. Right. I mean, that I mean, you can't just, you can't just kickstart, right. just kickstart evolution to the next level. No. It doesn't happen that way. Of it course just, not. you know, people just misunderstand evolution on both sides of the coin. And so it's very frustrating I, for sometimes. The, the only, the only kind of intelligent design argument that I'm really willing to accept is that, you know, there is a, there is a, you know, for, for, for lack of a better word, let's say God, there is a God that, you know, Kickstart at the Big Bang or kickstart at the universe and just let it kind of flow. That's it, you know. I mean, that's the uh, that's the only kind of, of creationism that I think that, that that is reasonable for someone to hold as a belief. Well, that's the deist mind view. Yeah, that, and anything. That, uh, this is this is the way that 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 Christians came to grips with the, the Newtonian view of the of the uh, deterministic universe. You know, the only way that they could see a role of God in that universe is if he, you know, created the universe from scratch, wound it up, and then let it go and basically kept his hands off of it as it, as it went. And it became a de- deterministic machine that God doesn't, doesn't interact with. And, uh, that, that tended to be the view of the universe for a long time among enlightened people. They couldn't see where you know, God's hand could work miracles through this deterministic Newtonian view of the universe. It was more like a like gears and springs that just that just ticked away. But then you get into relativity and quantum mechanics in the 20th century, and God suddenly becomes involved in physics again through these these leaps of Eastern and Western philosophy mapped onto quantum mechanics and non-locality and entangled particles. And suddenly, you know, uh, God is back into science in this really sort of weird, new age, pseudoscientific way, where he may be working at levels of probabilities and quantum mechanics and states of flux and parallel universe and multiple universes. It makes the whole God argument a little more complex. I mean, what the, what the scope of God is in the universe. And, uh, it, it basically, when you say that science is atheistic, and it's trying to become completely materialistic and wipe God out of the universe. It's a very, very narrow view of science. There may be some people in science who are like that. 
But there are other people in science who are keep digging at big questions, you know, why, 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 why? And you find things like dark energy and you find things like quantum indeterminacy and, and all of these weird little problems with the universe that don't fit neatly into our paradigm of, of, of you know, an ordered universe. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not there, there are, there's always a chance there is a creator in the mix, but I don't think science can say 100%. Uh, yes, every mystery is because God did it. Right. You know, they, they want a better answer than that. Right. And I mean, and I mean, again, uh, you know, I think that, that, that again, this, at least in my opinion, I think that there's a separation. Uh, I don't know if, if God is something that can be proven or that can be disproven, I think it's one of those things where people can personally experience it. They can personally seek it out. Um, but it's a it's it's a personal journey. It's an it's an experiential journey more more so than an analytical or an intellectual journey. I think. Um, so yeah, this is and this is an interesting thing because when you look at Rupert Sheldrake's, Sheldrake's work and you look at morphic resonance, when you think about what he's talking about, he's really sort of talking about God. Or a collective unconsciousness and all of these ideas that go come back to philosophical dualism that there's a uh, there's a spirit world outside of the material world where information exists and can be transmitted non locally through this psychic vibration or this morphic field and Graham Hancock is talking these alternate histories where there's some you know alien intervention or some sort of ancient mother culture that's been wiped out of history. Or, um, you know, the intervention of hallucinogenic drugs in human history is the catalyst for consciousness. And all of these kind of radical science fiction-y kind of theories. Both of these, both of these people, Graham Hancock and Rupert Sheldrake, are looking for something mysterious where maybe there is no mystery. And they say things in their talk like, well, science can't even touch the mystery of this or that. Science can't touch the mystery of this evolution or that evolution, or science can't touch the mystery of how, you know, people can, you know, simultaneously think about each other at the same time across vast distances. And to some extent, they are true. Science can't touch that stuff because science doesn't want to touch that stuff because it realizes there's not anything really tangible there. You know, you talk it up a lot and, you know, you do studies. Do people who pray, who pray to win the lottery every night actually win the lottery more than people who don't pray to, to win the lottery every night? No. People who buy lottery tickets win the lottery more than people who pray because they do the action that makes them win, which is buy more tickets. They, right. So, you know, you you look at all of these studies and you think, you know, what, what, what? how can we prove that anything that religion says is true? And the thing is, you can't. And that's why religion is such a good gambit is because you can never really press them to prove anything. Well, they can I, say what they want. And I but but see I think the other thing is again and I and, and I go back to this idea of experiential. I think that that it's a that it's an experiential thing uh less so than a than an analytical or a uh, intellectual uh, journey. Uh, but no no, but here's the thing about, you know, historical revisionism is I can say whatever I want about, you know, what Jesus said or did. You can't prove it. It was 2,000 years ago. Oh, you can look right, at historical right. documents and say, well, there's nothing in the historical record that says this. And I can say, well, I found an alternate history that says this and this and that. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, as far as Jesus goes, I mean, there's, the, you know, there's, there's the canonical gospels. Then you have the, um, Nag Hammadi Well, library. sure, but there's people who would want to say that all of that stuff is code for the fact that Jesus was actually a psychedelic mushroom. Yeah, but but I don't. There are people who will want to rewrite history to the point that they will insert a mushroom on the cross instead of Jesus and say that's the way it actually happened. What that the Romans crucified? Yeah, a like mushroom? John Allegro has a book called you know the Mushroom and the Holy Cross. I think that's what it's called. And this is a this is a, a trend in or it was a trend in psychedelic revisionism is every sacred event in human history. People in the psychedelic community, there's a, there's a faction of them that want to replace that event with a psychedelic drug. You know, whether it was soma or whether it was the the, the rituals at Eleusis or whether it was, um, you know, the the holy wine that Jesus gave his gave his uh, apostles. Um, there's there's been books, dozens of books written on decoding 
um, mushroom references in Bible scriptures and how all of the New Testament is actually coded references to uses of mushroom. And even you know what? Hold on, hold on. I, I, you know what? I do want to argue with you just for one second. <laughs> and wait a minute, but 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 there is a reason because if you and this and this is what 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 was really weird and and I had a friend who pointed this out to me once. He said, "Well, actually." Actually, it's aliens, he said. Um, well, yeah, and that's what Graham Hancock is saying. It's mushrooms and aliens. You so can, You don't have to pick one or the other. It can be all of them. It's no. what I'm saying, and you can't disprove them because it happened 2,000 years ago. Who's to say? I think it's in I, I, it maybe in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I'm not joking. I, I, I believe it's in the book of Ezekiel, um, which is where he, he talks. Yeah, here we go. I have it right here, um, where they talk about um, the eating of the scroll. Yeah. And okay, the vision of God, God and the cherubim, uh, and then he goes into into the thirteenth year and so on and so forth. He said, "The hand of the Lord came upon me as I looked. The storm wind came from the north, a huge cloud with flashing fl- fire and enveloped in brightness. From the midst of which, the mists of the fire, something gleamed like electrum. Within it were figures resembling four living creatures that looked like this. Their form was human, but each had four faces and four wings, and their legs went straight down. The soles of their feet were round. They sparkled with a gleam like burnished bronze. Their faces were like this. Each one of the four had the face of a man, but on the right side was the face of a lion, and on the left side the face of an ox. And finally, each had the face of an eagle. Their faces and their wings looked out on all their four sides. They did not turn when they moved, but each went straight forward. Okay, so if Stephen King had wrote, written that, what would you think? I would think, hey, that's a pretty interesting story. But the um, fact that it's in Ezekiel in the Bible, you go, oh, it must have happened. It must be true. Ezekiel wouldn't lie. Um, he, he was... Uh, <laughs> I, I, but you I, don't even know if those are Ezekiel's words or what right, I'm saying. And again, Anybody could have written those words and, 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 and put them in Ezekiel's mouth. Right, and that's, and, and, and that's the biggest problem when you go back to many of these, of, of these texts is because if you just look at the Bible, you know, uh, the Bible was, was put together you know, hundreds of years during the Council of Nicaea and, and, and the councils that followed, um, you know, by, by, by the church and. And it was a bureaucratic exercise right. and, to and, sort of put and, together, uh, the canon that they could all agree on. Now, well, no, 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 no. They didn't all agree on it. The Gnostics were put down. The Aryan Christians were put down. Um, all these, all of the, uh, non-Trinitarian Christians, uh, Christians were suppressed. Right. So, I mean, I mean, when I say it was very, not everybody could agree on it. But what I mean is it was a bureau, it was a bureaucratic, uh, document. It served a purpose, uh, to, to codify uh, the this, this, this singular agreed-upon canon as opposed to people arguing over the canon. And, and in doing so, they cut all the counter-arguments out of the canon. I mean, to basically unify it, to make it a single unified document that everybody could get behind. And, and like you said, they, they had to put down dissenters. And I mean, violently that. put them down sometimes. Uh, yes. unfortunately, like I mean, the Gnostics were almost totally wiped out. Yeah, and there over over history there have been religious sects that have been have been wiped out um, uh, repeatedly because they didn't they didn't meet with the and you know and that's and when I think of censorship that's what I think of I don't think of a video being pulled down from YouTube right yeah and so when when you look at Graham Hancock crying censorship I have to think that he's just trolling. And everybody who gets whipped up into a frenzy about this is really just feeding into that that hype. And uh, everybody who buys another copy of one of Graham, Graham Hancock's book is just, you know, buy, buying into the hype and, and falling for it. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting what Ted d- did. I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm actually glad they did it. Um, because I saw those talks up on Ted's site and I thought, well, what is Ted doing, you know, supporting Sheldrake? I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. Who in Ted, you know, is, is the psychedelic head who's gone down this path. But, you know, they, somebody called him on it and, uh, they're a big enough organization that they had to react. So yeah, the psychedelic community can't just spout anything and expect people to take them seriously. They need to have, you know. I think the days of Terrence McKenna wandering around convincing everybody that that aliens and and mushrooms are are why we have evolution and language are over. I think that's a that's a dying a dying breed of, of philosophers that are carrying that around 
Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully Graham Hancock and Rupert Sheldrake come back to TED with a slightly revised talk, you know, one that meets their standards. That would be great. I would love to see that. So, Well, we do have an interview that we wanted to play this evening. Um, yes. And we're coming to the last uh, bit of our show. So um, let's uh, go ahead and play the interview. James, do you want to... Uh introduce that yeah i was uh contacted by a young man named james jesso who is writing a book called decomposing the shadow and he is running an indiegogo campaign to finance the publishing of that book and a uh, publicity tour through the west coast canadian festival circuit this summer his indiegogo campaign is doing pretty well i think it's halfway funded and i think they're halfway through the campaign so uh you know he's on track to be funded you can find his campaign if you just search Decomposing the Shadow on Google, and I think his campaign is the first thing that pops up. Um, and uh, this is the interview with James W. Gesso. Why don't you tell us where you're calling from, James? Um, I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. And uh, is that how long have you lived there? Um, currently, I've lived in Calgary for just coming on three years right now. I'm originally from Kitchener, Ontario. Kitchener, Ontario. How big of a how big of a town is that? Um, well, it's actually like it's a growing city, and it's uh, known as the Tri Cities because Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge are three sort of like I guess second tier major cities in Ontario that all sort of like started to amalgamate each other while uh, while they grew and. Um, Kitchener Waterloo seems to be kind of popular because it has like four different colleges and universities, including John Laurier and the University of Waterloo. I'd say I spent the most memorable years of my life growing up in Kitchener, though I was originally born in London, Ontario. My father was a construction worker or still is a, like a heavy equipment operator. Right and on. so we grew up sort of following the work. And you, uh, you're in Calgary for what now? Um, well, I guess I'm in Calgary to find a sense of prosperity that isn't present in the socioeconomic situation of Ontario anymore. What? So you left, you left Ontario because you couldn't find work or it's just, uh, you, it was, you didn't see a future for yourself there. Well, um, it's an incredibly long and fun story, but instead of going into it, I'll just say that I left, um, I left Ontario to rediscover my independent adulthood after having returned from 18 months traveling overseas. Oh, yeah. Where were you traveling? I was traveling uh, mostly, I was mostly living in Melbourne, Australia, but I also traveled through Hawaii and uh, up the east coast of Australia and then through Thailand and Laos as well. What were your experiences while traveling through, uh, you know, the Pacific area there uh, in Australia and Southeast Asia? Um, well, I mean, that's a really broad question. Let's just say I I discovered entirely new elements of myself that I didn't even know I had uh, the potential within myself to be. It's very. Uh, why, why did you decide to go on, on a traveling? Did you did you just finish school, or you just decided that you needed to go f discover the world? Were you missing something, or were you looking for something? I felt I feel as though I probably just had like a a desire to find adventure, and uh, uh, several years before I'd actually left to go to Australia, I had a partner. And she really wanted to travel and seeded the idea in me. And the, our relationship didn't really pan out, but the desire to go traveling still did. And eventually I had told enough people that I was going that I had to either live up to it or, you know, not follow through with my words. So I left. Now, one of the things that, uh, I noticed, I saw that you had a, a, a funding campaign on Indiegogo and you have a video there describing some of your, a little bit of your travel. Uh, you discovered things about yourself. You learned things about yourself. Um, and you uncovered destructive habits that you had in your life, especially um, during um, use of psychedelic mushrooms. But before we get into that, let's talk about a little bit about who you were before this trip and what it was that sort of changed in you. You said you had destructive habits and viewpoints about um, you know, drugs or food or alcohol or women, or I'm not sure what, what the entire list was. But can you talk about that a little bit, about wh where you were as you started this journey, uh, as opposed to how you came out of it? Um, well, I guess I could, I could tie the, the journey of 
of how I changed as a person to like the development of my self-awareness and just um, what I understood about myself and seeing the processes that I was always kind of ongoing, but not necessarily conscious of. When I was in Ontario, I was, um, see, this is where the story gets a bit complicating. I lived in Ontario and then I moved to Calgary when I was about 20 on a spontaneous whim because I couldn't find work and I was really dissatisfied with my life. And I up and left my, my parents' house for the first time after. And how, how old were you? I was about 20 years old. And were and, you drinking at this point? Was that a uh, yeah. in your decision making at all? Yeah, I was, but not really uh, like a, I wasn't really like an aggressive drinker. And when I moved out to um, Calgary, I ended up moving in with a bunch of young guys who were first year college students. And oh boy. I, yeah. And so <laughs> said there was a lot of, a lot of shotgun luckies. And, uh, and late Canadian nights. style drinking, right? Yeah. A lot of, <laughs> yeah. Albertan style drinking, um, which was totally normal to me. You know, um, I had sort of a, I guess like a, a really strong stigma towards certain drugs and then like a really strong sort of like predetermined attitude towards others. So like ganja smoke was like, Oh yeah, every day, all the time, doesn't matter. Um, drinking was no big deal, but any type of chemical drugs, big problem there. That was, those were bad. Those were, those were wrong. You know, this so, is the. Now, now wait, let, let, let me, uh, let's go into that a little bit because I want to talk about maybe, you know, the, 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 the idea behind that. When you say chemicals, what are you talking about? Like LSD? Are we talking research chemicals? Like that kind of scene or? Well, that, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a great point for me to elaborate on. The mentality at that time was essentially, you know, very immature. It was like anything that didn't grow from the earth was considered in my mind to be mm -hmm. bad, except for alcohol and except for, you know, pharmaceuticals. I had this really, um, I had a perspective on drugs and alcohol that was, I guess, really driven by the, by the cultural theme at the time from where I was growing up, which was like certain drugs are bad, certain drugs are okay, and certain drugs are good, you know? And certain and ones so, aren't, yeah. Yeah. And so like, quote unquote chemical drugs in that perspective of the time, I suppose, was anything that didn't fall in line with being of the earth, you know? So I would, at that time, I'd take, I'd take psilocybin mushrooms or, or smoke ganja. Um, but I, I didn't really see a lot of respect in it. They weren't sacred in any way. They were just a thing that I would do. And I, I would rarely take mushrooms really. And when I did, we'd like go to the bar or like watch cartoons. It was a very immature uh, usage of substances at that time in my life. Right, so you, so it wasn't as much for exploration as it was for recreation. Absolutely. Um, my question, so 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 then my question becomes: What made you make the split in your mind, and and you know, sort of say to yourself, well, you know, there are other things out there that that are that are, you know, that are acceptable, and not only that, but it, this is not just a form of recreation. What what made you kind of make make that jump? Because there are a lot of people who just totally miss the jump. You know. I'm Exactly sure what, uh, what the point of, point of change would be. I mean, a lot of stuff is changing in a person at any given time, especially when they change their environment and change the context right. of their life, like going on a traveling adventure. Um, but I think what, what initially changed my perspective on the use of substances, period, was, uh, my first LSD journey wow. in, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, wherein, Beforehand, I was, I was quite terrified of LSD. Um, you know, I'm sure we've all heard this, this, this saying that, you know, you take it once, it changes you forever. You know, you can never right. go yeah, back. Yeah, you can never, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like the ultimate trip, you know? Right, like, right, you're right. Yeah, so I was really scared and I had gotten to Melbourne and I mentioned in this campaign video that I was, I was very ill. Like I, I think I was going through probably some sort of psychological sort of illness as well as just like a physical illness of like contracting some sort of virus or something that gave me really intense uh, intestinal issues. Mm -hmm. And I went out there, I met up with a friend of mine from, uh, from Canada who's like, who I really respected. And he had taken LSD for his first time while he was out there. And after talking to him and realizing that he hadn't gone batshit crazy after taking LSD, I was like, okay, so maybe, maybe it's not as intense as I've been told. And I had this journey with these these friends from Melbourne, and uh, I guess it was a really nice experience. They were pretty well versed in how to take this in a conscious setting, and we all sat inside uh, the one person's room and 
took, uh, took just a tab each and just like played with clay and drew and looked at, you know, art books. And I just had some, had this one particular experience where I was kind of like head in my hands, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, woe is me. Like, like repeating this, this really self-depreciating narrative of, of what was wrong and, and why things weren't working. And it was you like, I wallow, was com- wallowing in self-pity. Yeah. Yeah. I was completely wallowing in self-pity. It was a very familiar, um, but cold and damp wallow for sure. And I had all of a sudden, I was like outside of my body or like outside of myself, you could say. And I'm watching myself do this, like repeat this narrative. And I'm like, wow, I'm perpetuating my own problems with this narrative. I could just change the way I, you know, language my life. I could change the way I interact with myself and I'll change you know, my whole life. So at that moment, I realized I was just going to let go of this old story of I'm not this and I'm not that. I can't this and there isn't any of this and blah, 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 blah. And I said to myself, like, I'm going to let go of trying to be this, this person I was while I was in Canada. I'm in a new place at a new time. And so I'm going to be a new person and let myself be whoever I opened up to being. And at that point, I just allowed myself to experience whatever came my way. You mentioned uh, saying, you know, allowing yourself to be who you really are, allowing yourself to um, just experience and simply to 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 experience as opposed to analyze and kind of wallow in that self-pity, that kind of overthinking and the anxiousness and so on. Would mm-hmm. you uh, would you say that that was something that 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 you could that, that you would not have achieved if it wasn't for the experiences that you had on on LSD and so on? I think it would be kind of like an irresponsible statement to say that I couldn't have achieved mm-hmm. um, one thing or another if I hadn't had one experience or another, because it's really, it's really context dependent. You know, I could, I could be this exact same person almost with a totally different set of experiences. I could say that reflecting um, that, uh, that first LSD experience did give me a new um, avenue of perspective or a new avenue of self-awareness that I hadn't had available to myself before. And because of that, I was able to interact with my life in a different way. Yeah, because, you know, there, there, there are some people who say, well, no, this is the only way that, you know, you know, if it wasn't for, for, you know, this particular drug and so on and so forth, um, you know, some people may, may maintain that there's no other way to achieve that. But Mm -hmm. so, when you returned back to Canada, did you, did you feel, new did you feel awakened as as if something had had awakened inside of you and that you could just sort of do whatever you had to do no i felt i felt totally broken and fragile mm-hmm. fragmented sensitive tender vulnerable alone uh alienated uh mildly depressed um yeah i, I didn't i didn't feel very good at all and why was that or why do you think that was well part of the um i guess part of this you know, I'm going to cultivate Australia, James, came with, I'm going to have whatever experience came my way. And I just happened to get myself involved with a, with a very, uh, a very active Melbourne party culture, um, arts and party. And so I ended up spending about eight months sinking deeper and deeper into substance use. And this is where I mentioned developing destructive patterns where all the elements of myself that are, this is a generalized sort of statement, but all the elements of myself that I had once sort of taken, I guess, pride in, which was like, so to a mildly sent like service of others and like being generally a good person and, and not acting selfishly and not being self-absorbed and egotistical as, as far as I understood at this other level of self-awareness that I was before Australia all seemed to dissolve away, um, to support like a, like a megalomaniac sort of egoic perspective on myself and the ongoing practice of taking stuff, whatever it could be, and going out and having big, grand experiences, which in a lot of ways was fun, but in a lot of ways resulted also in destroying friendships that were genuine um, and kind of like doing things that I normally wouldn't do. You know, like even looking back, it's like I, I don't wish that I hadn't done them because they brought me to where I am. But from a clear perspective, I probably never would have put myself in that situation. I want to, I want to uh, jump back right. just a tiny bit here and talk a little bit about this party scene that you found in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Was this specifically like a trance, a psychedelic trance scene or how would you describe the scene? Uh, 
it was kind of like a waster scene. It wasn't, I actually didn't really get involved with psychedelic trance until, uh, probably the last several months. Um, I've, so waster scene means like they're doing inhalants and hard drugs and whatever they can get their hands on as opposed to being more. Um, yes and no. I mean, it's more like, you know, like whatever kind of comes up, it focused a lot around, um, I mean, n- more or less my pers- participation, but the culture seemed to focus a lot around like amphetamine and, uh, like MDMA and LSD in a very, very recreational perspective. Um, and just like going, going hard, a lot of booze as well, and just, just partying. So when I say waster, it's more along the lines of like, yes, we're intelligent. Yes, we're creative. Um, yes, we have stuff we could do in this world, but it's, it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Let's get wasted. And you were in that scene for, you said like how, how many, how long? Six months? I'd say like, yeah, six, I'd say it was about six months. Um, and so you were, you were, you were in a group of how many people and, uh, like competing to party harder than everybody else. And it was <laughs> sort of this, this cyclical thing of where's the next party and what are we doing next and how can we go bigger? Uh, well, yes, yes and no. I mean, like that's drawing some conclusions that are sort of like too broad to, to say like, yes, that's what it was. But ultimately I was interacting with a group of friends that, had this general perspective, but also like a wider community that was more or less involved with being that aggressive with their usage. But the sort of group of friends that I was involved with were definitely like, yeah, it's, let's go party. So when you came back, you were, you say that you were, you were kind of broken and shattered. Um, how did you start putting yourself back together? Um, well, first I'd like to sort of uh, mention how I got to broken or like just like depressed, I guess, from this this party lifestyle, which was, I kind of came to realize what I was doing. I had this like awareness of like, Oh man, I'm, I don't like what I'm doing right now. And I, and I don't know how to get back to where I was. I don't even know who I was. You know, I just don't like who I am and I don't know how to not be doing the things that I'm doing anymore. And, um, there's more stories that go along with that, but ultimately what I ended up doing was, um, going through this process of eliminating the things in my life that I felt as if I was over consuming, which is mentioned in the Indiegogo campaign that you referenced a couple minutes ago. And, uh, the conclusion to that sort of like, I guess, cleansing of compulsive elements of my life, uh, was taking a private journey down to, uh, sort of like the South, the South end of Victoria in Australia to a place called the Otways National Park, spending two nights alone out there and taking psilocybin mushrooms while I was out there as a way to, from what I understood at the time, like I had this sense of like, Oh, that was the most quote unquote spiritual healing psychedelic and that I'd go and I'd, I'd do this and it would give me some sort of healing. I didn't know what was going to come of it. And uh, that was the first experience I had that said like, these could be constructive beneficial tools. So I was having a really challenging time learning how to basically navigate myself through this culture I was involved with, which is where all my friends were. It was everything that I was in Australia. I wasn't ready to go home yet. I was still sick and struggling with addiction and having a lot of personal challenges. Um, so when my visa was up in Australia, I went to Thailand and spent two months wandering around alone there and sort of going through like a, like a personal deconstruction of myself until I had a psychological breakdown, like a nervous breakdown in Thailand or sorry, in Bangkok and wow. uh, spent a couple of days just like in a trance and feeling like I was dying. And I made this video for my parents, which was like my whole trip through Thailand. And it kind of evolves from me and happy Thai pants, at the grand palace and like doing video blogs where I'm talking to my mom and my dad and my sister to like, by the end of it, you know, I'm talking to my camera, like it was my best friend. And it's just like these weird, like really strange artsy photos. And the last, the last clip is me in a white bathroom and my eyes look like that of a wounded animal. And I'm just talking to the camera about how I'm going to cut off on my hair and beard to try to feel normal again. And, um, yeah, so I, I had this like breakdown and I just kept saying to myself, like, I can't die in Bangkok because that's what I thought was happening to me. And, uh, wow. and this was, and this was the result of being, um, isolated in a new culture and withdrawing from this substance abuse scene. And were you taking mushrooms in Thailand at all? I did once. It's a very, uh, it's a very, very interesting experience that I, 
I don't know if you want me to elaborate on it's a bit of a long story, but I, I did once. It was it was really beautiful and quite a novel, novel experience. And um and so by the time you were done in Thailand, you had gone through you'd had this nervous breakdown and you'd had this I don't know, this identity snap where you became well you when when you look at yourself in the video, you describe yourself like a wounded animal. Yeah. Um so you were in some sort of shock or trauma. Yeah, I think I was by the end of the trip. Yeah, I, th- I think I was just, I, I don't really know how to make conclusions about where I was at in my psychology, right. but I definitely felt as if I was at sort of a very, very low point, and I was seeing the, the psychological and the physiological manifestation of that, of that place within myself and within my life. And so you came home from Thailand? Yeah, I mean, I or ended you came up back going, to Calgary from Thailand. I went back to Australia oh. for two weeks. Oh, I um, just to okay. say goodbye to some friends and to kind of like, thankfully, like debrief and decompress from this experience. Um, it was, it had gotten to the point, like when I got off the plane in Australia and I had these really good friends of mine that were, that were there to, you know, come welcome me back. Um, that when, you know, one of my best friends came to give me a hug, as soon as he started to hug me, my whole body was like repulsed. I was like, I, felt so uncomfortable being touched. And this is one of my best friends, right? So that by the time I left Australia after two weeks to head home to Ontario to see my parents for the first time in 18 months, mm-hmm. I um, I was feeling normal enough that I could talk with people. But on the inside, it's like, yeah, I'm coming off as rather normal, but I'm, I'm confused and I'm feeling lonely and um, not super depressed, but definitely um, not happy and stoked on my life in any way. I mean, essentially, I came back from having been away from seeing my family for 18 months and having been away from living with my parents, you know, uh, for a few years. And part of that being this, like, totally independent, wild being in another country to, like, you know, living in their basement, uh, which was a very, again, added to this sense of depression, a sense of, like, oh, God, where's my life going? Now that the party is over, what am I going to do? Where did you go from there? You know, you're sitting in your basement. You're saying, okay, the party is over. I've concluded that chapter. Where do we go from here? What were your next steps forward? What, what, and at this point in time, were, were your friends, your peers, were they in college? Were they working? Were they still living their, their normal lives back in Ontario? And a lot not of, able a lot to of, relate to you at all? Or what was going on back there? Um, a lot of the friends that I had growing up in Ontario uh, were still there, and I got to really revisit those friendships, and I'm very grateful for them to be such like uh, welcoming people. When I did come back, I was a very different person. I had a few friends say that they thought it was like really baffling when they first saw me when they got back. They were like, "Who the hell is this guy?" You know, because um, I came back, you know, from like uh, when I lived in Ontario, I was like a really deeply involved like metalhead hardcore kid to like coming back and just wearing like Mm -hmm. psychedelic colors all the time with like a crazy haircut and always talking about dmt (laughs) (laughs) you know so they were like who the hell is this guy you know none of the people out there that i was interacting with had really gotten involved with psychedelics or drugs in that way so that so the scene in ontario didn't i mean was there no scene or you just didn't even know about it i didn't really know about it as i spent a few months there obviously I mean, like I could make up all sorts of metaphysical terms to say why it happened, but I did end up meeting a lot of people who were a little bit more involved with the the implications of the psychedelic experience and discussing that and exploring it. But the culture. On, you mean? The culture, yeah. yeah. So Ontario seems to have a much more intellectual perspective on it. Like, let's talk about the psychology and how it the brain functions in this way and how it might relate to the mind and all this jazz where I find, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, where in comparatively the West Coast out here seems to be uh, a lot more about like, how can we use this for healing? These are plant medicines and spirit medicines. And so there's like, kind of like there's a comparison between the different cultures between Ontario and the West Coast here, which is, it's a very interesting for me because um, having grown up in Ontario and really identifying with uh, with that intellectual perspective, while at the same time, also really identifying with the uh, with the sort of uh, experiential characteristics of spirituality within within the psychedelic experience uh, it's a great opportunity for me to live one culture while trying to balance another perspective you you mentioned on uh, in your indieGogo campaign 
that you want to do a West Coast festival circuit with yep. your book. Can you explain to me what the West Coast festival circuit is? Is this like a trans festival circuit? I, yeah, I'm not familiar what? with that either. Well, the West Coast festival circuit, so um, the West Coast of Canada has a lot of different sort of music festivals that happen, ranging from folk music festivals to electronic music festivals, though my primary focus is electronic music. Um, the festivals aren't necessarily, like there's a couple that are Psytrance specific, but there's a really great variety of electronica. And usually there's multiple stages that focus on different styles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, though, can you give me that, the name of a few festivals? Can you name a few? Yeah, of them? totally. Just, um, just a couple to, of them so would be like, a... yeah, Astral Harvest is one. Uh, Motion Notion is another one. Uh, Base Coast Mad Hatter Festival. Um, Shambhala is like a really popular one. It's the biggest. I think it's yeah, the I've biggest heard of Shambhala festival in North America. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've heard of that one. Yeah, so that would be like some examples. And so you want to go to these festivals to to promote um, the book you're writing. Can you tell me a little bit about about the book? Well, um, yes, I want to head and do these festivals as well as a few major cities teaching um, one-hour workshops on the festival topic or at the book topic at the festivals and then two-hour presentations like very in-depth on the book's topics um, in the major cities or in a few major cities. The I guess the concept of the book is is to explore. I guess I I mentioned that balance between an intellectual perspective on the experience and an experiential sort of spiritual perspective on the experience, and sort of bringing the two together, wherein um, you could offer the book to somebody on either side or in the middle to say like, here's where I have found these two areas of examining the experience to join as it has been relative to my personal experience of using the psilocybin mushrooms to heal through the personal challenges I had um, that I we had been talking about while I was in Ontario to, you know, 13 months later, um, being feeling very grounded and very healed and very in line with my passion and purpose and living a very good life, and very happy with who I was. So the book is called Decomposing the Shadow. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit where that that title comes from? And what, what that means to you? Oh, absolutely. So, um, the book spans a lot of, uh, like a broad spectrum. So it's like a full paradigm for sort of how we interpret our experience, um, how we conceptualize our experiences and how that relates to the experience of psilocybin. And one of the primary noting point, nodal points in this book is talking about the experience of like the, the shadow, like the Jungian archetype would be a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically your own darkness and the, the really important, um, the, the strong importance of actually facing, facing our darkness with the psilocybin mushrooms and the healing properties that go with that. Oftentimes, um, a disbalanced look is brought onto it, um, and onto life in general, which is like, oh, and I'm, I'm going to mock a little bit here. So pardon me. For this mockery, no, that's fine. But, we we um, mock a lot. Go ahead. Okay. That's fine. That's There's fine. this perspective of like, oh, it's all love and light. Like, let's live in the love dimension. You know, like mm-hmm. this, uh-huh, this, yep. this darkness isn't real, man. No, you know? it's and real. It's, like, it's palpable. Yes, it, yeah, yes, it is, and it's yours. So take ownership for it, right? Um, and so I know Jan Irvin talks about. Um, he's the guy from Gnostic Media. I don't know if you guys are. Yeah, familiar. I know. I I know him. Go ahead. He. T- he has, he has his perspectives on how the mushroom experience works towards mind control. And, and I, I find it a very interesting perspective. And I also, I find that it is, uh, really descriptive of how when only the positive aspects are focused on, a disbalanced look is created in a person where it's, it's all, everything's beauty and love and light. And let's not worry about the darkness and stuff. Let's look at the spiritual elements beaming in all of life. And I think that's, um, that's a great place for people to get to if, They've only known the, they've only known the, the other side of that. But I find that it becomes very disbalanced and hinders a person from really achieving great things and healing the damage that's associated to, you know, the, the world's context this time. And so decomposing the shadow is a reference to, obviously to mushrooms as like the fungal, the fungi kingdom as the decomposers of the planet, right? 
um, and mm-hmm. how when we utilize psilocybin mushrooms to enter an experience wherein we allow, if it arises, a confrontation with the shadow to kind of go through us without us resisting it, without us, you know, creating uh, labels like, oh man, it was a bad trip. I don't want to talk about it. Let's hide from the pain and the sorrow and the sadness and the regret that I was experiencing. I just want to push that down and pretend it didn't happen. I want to shelve it into just a bad trip, you know, and move on with my life. But if we actually mm-hmm. allow this process to come up when it comes up naturally and organically and let it flow through us, that what we'll do is, is face the elements of our shadow that are generating a type of chronic repression. Yeah. Of our, of our darkness and allow that blockage to sort of dissolve or be decomposed by the mushroom experience. And in turn, we learn a sense of, a sense of bravery in facing our own darkness, a sense of, a sense of awareness that isn't based on this disbalanced sort of, um, narrow viewpoint of let's only focus on one thing or another, but let's look at the broad spectrum. Let's face the darkness and the challenge and, and, and then step through it and in, into the goodness. And I'm using a lot of, you know, like a bit new agey terms, light, dark, mm-hmm. let's step into the yeah, good and whatever, sure it's but both. it's right. descriptive, you know? So, um, so what do you yeah. think of the term entheogen as a term in, as a term, as opposed to psych- uh, say psychedelic or hallucinogen? Because um, to me, it seems that using the term entheogen, it's only talking about one aspect of the experience, which is the spiritual light side. It doesn't touch any of the other stuff that comes with the experience. I agree. Like, I think like I think entheogen is a is a great term um, for describing the sort of cultivated spiritual experience that comes with a like a psychedelic experience. I mm-hmm. think the term psychedelic is a little bit more broad. Um, right. The term hallucinogen. I know that the root of that word is descriptive as to the experience, but the sort of cultural. Um, use of the term hallucinogen sort of implies that your experience isn't real. Um, and I think that our experiences on these things are very real. Um, at least at a, at the very least at an emotional level, all the emotions that we're feeling in these experiences, all the perspectives that we're having about ourselves are very real, mm-hmm. whether or not they're really up. The sensation is, the sensation is real. Everything totally. that you feel is real. So yeah. And, and I think that's, that's something that I talk about in the book is, is like, this is how we can apply this into our lives is when we start looking at these experiences as, as very real expressions of our emotional honesty and incorporating it into our life from there instead of getting confused and distracted by, by concepts like, um, concepts like aliens and, you know, like galactic downloads and terms that can be descriptive in a playfully poetic way, but tend to alienate people that don't understand and block people from really applying things into their lives constructively and realistically. Pardon that last term. I'd like to strike realistically from the record. <laughs> and put a change it with what? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It just it just felt sort of like um, it felt sort of egotistical for me to apply to describe that I think one thing is real more than another, and I don't think that's fair for me to make that statement. And that was James Gesso talking about his book "Decomposing the Shadow," and uh, that will be available this summer. You can check out his Indiegogo campaign. We'll have a link to that on the Dose Nation website, or you can search Google Decomposing the Shadow, and you will find his campaign. I found it interesting how at the end of the interview there, he was uh, he was actually questioning about whether or not he had the authority to say what was what was real, yeah, you know, one person's reality, but against another person's reality. And there and there you go. Even even still today, people are people have this bias against reality as, as something that may be more uh, transient than we think it is. But um, you know what? Tomorrow, reality will still be there. And, uh, I hope so. It will be there long after we're gone. So well, let's it- not turn our backs on reality just yet. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. Um, you can support Dose Nation by visiting dosenation.com and subscribing through iTunes or the or or, uh, or RSS feed. You can follow us on Facebook uh, at facebook dose uh, facebook.com forward slash dose nation or at dose nation on Twitter. 
You can rate or comment uh, our, uh, on our shows in iTunes. Uh, this helps our visibility in iTunes uh, rankings and will help uh, get us picked up by other podcast indicators. You can go to dosenation.com and click uh, through the link for Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason by James Kent, of course, who's with me here, uh, founder of Dose Nation. And you can buy a copy of the book or ebook and do some shopping on uh, Amazon to give Dose Nation the affiliate commission. Uh, you can visit pages for previous shows and find links to all the books we mentioned here on the show on Amazon.com. You can also click on our uh, link to books in the Dose Nation menu and take a look at the books we've recommended. Uh, click through Amazon.com and shop as you normally would. Uh, this is an easy step for all of you. It helps us out tremendously, and uh, it helps the authors and artists uh, we are trying to promote here on the podcast. Yeah, and that's a great way for uh, you know people to come on the show, get a little visibility, mm -hmm. sell a couple books, and that's really what it's all about, is spreading the information. And finally, uh, if you like Dose Nation, uh, tell a friend, anyone who listens to iTunes, anyone who listens to podcasts, these are people who would love to have another hour of disembodied people talking over an electronic network to fill the void of human existence. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. <laughs> I'm your host, Jake. <laughs> With me, as always, is co-host and founder of the podcast. Another disembodied voice for your head. <laughs> See you next week, people. Yeah, see you next week, everybody. And, uh, Have a good week. Thanks for joining us.